Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Software is eating the world. Those words were famously spoken by Mark Andreessen, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, a top Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And he seems to be right so far. If we look at the top 10 most valuable companies by market capitalization in 2020, eight of them could be classified as software companies, at least in part. And these companies are number one, Apple, number two, Microsoft, number three, the Saudi Arabian oil company, number four, Amazon, number five, Alphabet, which is the holding company that owns Google and other technology ventures, number six, Facebook, number seven, Tencent Holdings, which is the group behind WeChat, among other things. Number eight, Tesla, which I, in this case, have considered a software company, at least in part. Number nine, Alibaba. And number 10, Berkshire Hathaway. Interestingly, number 10, Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's investment company, has about 40% of its portfolio invested in number one, Apple. Another interesting observation about this group of supersized companies is that many of them rely on network effects, machine learning, and AI to create and maintain their market dominance. It seems to me that data and networks are eating the world now and that software is just an enabler. The aforementioned companies have disrupted many industries in their wake, but some traditional and systemically very important industries remain dominated by the same companies that have been around for decades. Think, for instance, about the following four industries. Banking, insurance, utilities, and telecommunications. These four industries have a few things in common. They are systemically very important to our modern society. They provide relatively commoditized products and services. They are based on a subscription-type business model, and these industries all require a substantial capital investment and economies of scale to turn a profit, so it's very hard for new entrants to get a foothold. And lastly, they generate a lot of consumer behavioral data. And this data is exactly what is going to disrupt these industries in the near future. In Australia, the government has introduced the consumer data right, which gives you, the consumer, the right to share 
data between service providers of your choosing. So far, this scheme is only active in banking, which is also known as open banking, but it is planned to be rolled out across all the aforementioned industries in the coming years. When it's possible to share your data across many entities, it's actually less important which entity generated that data, and more important, who is better at using that data to create exceptional customer experiences and improved financial outcomes. One of the companies that I see as a huge potential winner from this trend is called Finder. As a product and service comparison site, they sit in the middle of all these industries as a trusted third party. The company recently received their accreditation to receive data under the consumer data right, so I decided to have a chat with their co-founder and CEO, Fred Shebesta. Fred is one of Australia's coolest and most successful entrepreneurs, and he's now worth over half a billion dollars, all achieved without any funding. He's passionate about disruptive innovation, and he's a leader in the startup community, where he shares his success and knowledge as a mentor, international speaker, media commentator, and author. Fred is a futurist and an expert in cryptocurrency, and he's leading Finder's venture capital arm, which is called Finder Ventures, which has built one of the most innovative money apps in Australia, the Finder app. Fred's latest project, Shebesta Ventures, is a platform to help more startups develop their business ideas. Fred has recently published a new book called Go Live, 10 Principles to Launch a Global Empire, which we'll hear more about in this podcast. In this episode, we also talk about data-led disruption, how Finder uses AI and machine learning to provide better service to its users, cryptocurrencies, and much more. So let's dive in. Here is Fred. So Fred Chibesta, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Our listeners would have heard a little bit about you in the intro, but I think it's always best to hear straight from the horse's mouth who you are and what you're about. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and Finder.com, the business that you founded many years ago now? Yeah. So I think when it comes down to it, I'm a creator. I'm a creative person. I like to invent things and I'm a curious person. I've always been like that since a child. And, you know, I think there's these classic sort of founder combinations where you have, you know, the steady analytical, you know, business person combined with the creative destroyer slash creator. And I'd put myself in that destroyer slash creator sort of box. And when my the other founder is, yeah, who runs the business, I think there's a lot that's sort of a, an atypical formation. One's a little more conservative and the other one's a little more, yeah, out there. But, you know, you tend to swing back and forth. And I think Finder was really a business. It was an experiment that we were experimenting with a whole series of websites that we were putting up and out there. And, you know, we had a Sudoku site, we had a poker site, a sports betting site, and credit card comparison was just one of those niches we wanted to have a look at. And, you know, we worked on that business and really went full-time into it in 2009 after we sold our, our first company which was Freestyle Media, which built websites and did internet marketing. And it was a brutal business. And, you know, I think we, we've really been rolling out and executing our core strategies that we took from that business 
into this business and we're still rolling them out. And, you know, I think now we're really becoming a fintech business and evolving into another whole other dimension of a company, which is lots of fun, right? You you take a, a single domain space and you work at it for, I don't think we've probably been doing this for like 11 years now. The innovation and the creativity that you can get and, and really drive from that, I think is incredible. And I think continuously to reinvent, reinventing ourselves, I think I really enjoy that part as well. That's really my sort of passion. And that's really where the Finder app has come from and originated from. And we're really pushing that forward and really pushing the envelope of where that will go. So tell us a little bit about the Finder app versus the website. So what's in the app and, and what's your vision for it? Yeah, I think the app is a place where our customers can continuously get savings from their bills and also they can um, invest their money. And so they can you know, earn and make money because they're really, you know saving making money is about saving money and investing money that's really what it comes down to and you can do that in the finder app so the first investment piece you launched was you the ability to buy and sell cryptocurrency and it's 3 minutes to you know start and get up and running and actually buy and, and or you know whatever it is you ethereum or bitcoin which is really incredible and we focus very much on that experience right that's really what we were trying to trying to do in the saving money space, you know, we've been comparing things for a very long time and we've built a lot of automated and machine learning algorithms that essentially go through your transactions. We're actually one of the only fintech comparison businesses as well that in Australia that has an open banking uh, accreditation. We got that last Monday, actually. And so the transactions are safe. And we obviously we have 88 million transactions, rounding about 300,000 transactions a day. And those transactions essentially help inform our machine learning, inform our models and help us help our members save more money. And then they take that money and they can go and invest that. And we've just begun. You know, this is really just the beginning of this incredible product where, you know, it's just kicked off. There's 159,000 people using it in Australia today. It's only really just launched last March and it's picking up momentum every single day. It's, it's a, it's a new business and we think it's got incredible potential and it's, you know, some of the, the products we're going to roll out next, they're going to be, yeah, you, no one's ever done that before and no one's ever seen it. It's, it's going to bring back the balance where, you know, there was a time when people used to, you know, put their money with a bank and make money and that's gone. Banks don't make you any money anymore. And I want to bring that back. I want to bring back the modern bank. And not necessarily credit industry has to be a bank. I think the idea of where you put your money doesn't actually have to be. Eventually, it sits in some bank account somewhere, but that's really infrastructure these days. And that's my vision of the future is where banks really become banks and vaults of cash. And then the fintechs really layer over the top of them. And I think that's started to happen, right? That's what Finder is evolving and becoming. And you know, I think we're going to see some major, major changes in the next, I'd say, 12 months. Yeah, really interesting. And you, you've mentioned quite a few interesting threats here for us to pull on, mm. especially given that this is a, a podcast about AI and machine learning and analytics in, in business. And, and I agree with you around the app layer, if you call it that, there's the fintech layer on top of banks. And you, you're starting to see that in Asia, for instance. I think in in China, we have WeApp, sorry, WeChat, which is a, a super app for everything. And I think in, in South Korea, they have something called Kakao from memory, uh, which you might have studied as well. And do you see the Finder app becoming that sort of super app for all things uh, consumer finance and, and other things in Australia over time? And maybe uh, when you answer that question, 
how do you see your your open banking accreditation fitting into that in the short and long term? Yeah, I think in some way, shape, or form, we I think Finder is going to become part of the the ecosystem that really drives and pioneers the future forward. And the reason for that is, you know, we have an extreme mobility and understanding of cryptocurrency, and and I think that's you know a lot of people mark cryptocurrency up as some sort of just Bitcoin and things like that, but I think it's evolved way past that. And I think we can bring that and bring those benefits to to members, you know, and, and I think that's that's important. And the second thing I think is important with that is, you know, with that super app position, you know, we already partner with two two and a half thousand partners all around the world, banks, insurance companies, uh, utility companies, uh, online e-commerce stores, VPN providers. You know, you name it, Finder has a partnership. And that's because we compare so many different services, right? I think naturally we have an, a good position to become that centerpiece uh, because we understand so many verticals and we have so many relationships already. You know, I think in terms of open banking, maybe to give context, you know, we've got our open banking registration in for the UK and the EU um, as well. And that is a different kind of service that we can enable there where you can get payments as well as reading people's transactions who consent for the, our, our algorithms to read them. So it's, it's sort of at a different place than, than in Australia. I think in Australia, the trajectory is more towards open energy. So our, one of my other founder, Frank, he sits on the open energy board in Australia. And I think that's coming next. There'll be open super, open insurance. It's going to go through every single industry in Australia. And I think what we're really trying to encourage as well is even further opportunity opening up for payments and write access. So where you can create and write services, I think that's where the future will go. And I think we're, we're pushing hard and, and the government's on board with that as well. They want to make this work. They want CDR to, which they've invested and they've committed in this budget another $110 million to, to be a thing, to be used by Australians to save money. And I think that's important, right? So having access to your your data through the consumer data, right, which is a law in Australia, it is, it's not it's not a optional guideline. It is it is a piece of law um, where you know customers consumers have the right to their data, and you can give access to third parties in order to read that and add value. And I think my submission of where that goes is a more convenient faster set of rails for people to save money and make money. And hopefully Finder can be, you know, an, an actual, you know, I, I think we can serve our, you know, customers in America, Australia, the UK, and, and really serve them with an incredible piece of software and tools that we've been building for the last two and a half years and perfecting our models to, to add a lot of value to their life and make it, make it easier to deal with their finances all in one place. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more around the 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 read versus write access. Uh, how how much of a game changer that will be, and just for for the purpose of uh, the listeners here. So, at the moment, the legislation is set up such that you can read transactions. Say, if we use the transaction example from a bank account, but you can't write to the bank account and make make transactions on behalf of the customer. But of course, for you as a as an app that might sort of aggregate all this information from various banks, the right access is a complete game changer and would also uh, add a level of competitiveness into whatever industry, say banking, uh, that is has not been seen before uh, because those rails are there. 
Now you do mention uh, AI and machine learning uh, a lot. Um, how do you see that being part of this and, and what, what are the sort of particular use cases that you see becoming really important in this world of, of uh, data flows between organizations and, and you actually having the ability to have the full picture of, of the customer for, for the first time potentially? Yeah, I think we, we've started to really build models around our members and to start figuring out ways that our machine can start to see, you know, ways that they can save money that maybe would be quite challenging for a human to do. And I think that machine's getting smarter every day. So there are, I'd say, probably 500 plus interactions with our transactions every day within the Finder app. And those transactions get smarter because our members basically add more information to them. And the reason why they add more information is because they get better results back, right? There's a nice trade there of, of value. And then, you know, what with I think is going to happen is based on that intuition, based on, well, I guess the machine's intuition, uh, intu- machine intuition, that's an interesting idea. Um, <laughs> you know, what does the machine know that we don't know intuitively, which is really its model to some extent. You know, it's really just about picking up patterns, right? And comparing, you know, similar types of people. I spoke to a you know, some financial advisors once and they said, you know, how will you legally comply with what's required when you're, you know, because you're kind of giving financial advice. I said, well, you know, it's not actually financial advice. It's just maths. It's like, here's a person that looks like you and here's another person that uh, looks like you and another person and another person and all these people and they seem to be paying this amount of money whereas you pay this. And I think large banks have had that data for a hundred years they already know who's paying too much and who's paying too little. I think in that space, I reject the notion completely that big banks are going to take over, you know, this budgeting space because they've already had that data and there's an inherent bias, unfortunately or fortunately for the customer that encourages them to keep the customer with the product which they're in, in order potentially them to not to benefit the customer in the best way they possibly can. And so there's this unique spot, I think, that has been opened up for us in this new data world where we can let the data inform the customer about what we, what it can do and what's possible, number one. And number two, there's a new place for a new type of organization that can um, facilitate that. And, you know, we've been doing this for 11 years. We've been helping people compare stuff and find ways to save money for 11 years. And I think we've also started, what we've started to do now is help people invest their money. You know, lot, through COVID, lots of people came to find a, to find places to input their money, right? Because yield on your money has gotten to a place which is pretty poor, right? You're getting, if you have a hundred grand in the bank, the bank's probably going to pay you 25 bucks a month. That's not even going to cover inflation. So you're essentially losing money. And, you know, there are many, many ways in which you can deploy your money to earn way more than that where you don't need to you know, gamble it. You don't need to take high risk options. You can simply take actually relatively low risk options. The, the challenge with it is a lot of those products have not been opened up to retail. They are actually sitting with large banks, family offices, private health, uh, private wealth managers, and things like that. So they can access you know, three, four, 10, 12% interest comfortably by lending to corporations, by lending to uh, mortgage-backed securities. There's all sorts of different places which 
is are possible, but it has not been retailized. And so I think they're also the other part that will come from this is an absolute Cambrian explosion in new products and new innovation because the products which, you know, a lot of these financial institutions have traditionally banked on will become commoditized. You know, you'll have a fund, maybe you might have a fund, a bank account, maybe you'll, maybe you won't. And, you know, maybe that central place, it continuously helps you save money, continually helps you invest your money. And so those kind of services traditionally will fade, will be commoditized away. What then will, is needed and what always happens is you get innovation. And the way you innovate is you start to access products or bring products which were not accessible to certain audiences and start to make them available. And I think you're going to see things in bonds, term deposits, mortgages, property, cryptocurrency, uh, you know, futures and, and spot and trading strategies start to open up and start to become available to retail customers because you know what we see on our site and we have a you know we can see the that kind of information is you know people want they want to make money right they want to go to a place where they can go back to making putting their money safely away and, and for it to earn money for them that's what banks used to do now they don't and so i think the market is compelling us to change and i think that's what's going to happen yeah nice summary and the way I think about this is the biggest competitive advantage that a bank in this in this instance has uh, compared to everyone else in the market is the data that it holds on its own customers because they're the only ones who have that information on that person until now where it's uh, mandated that it has to be shared and it's just a completely different ballgame. And, and while the banks are, are busy building the, the poles and wires, so to speak, that make up this ecosystem, you can sort of position yourself to take advantage of it once it's ready. So it's a, it's a cool time to be a business-like finder, in my opinion. Now, you did talk about how you use machine learning and models there. So what, what are some of the practical, really sort of basic practical hurdles that you need to get through to actually build this vision? Because machine learning and AI is still in, in the broader sense, it's sort of a nascent discipline where there's a lot of things we haven't thought through yet, uh, ethics, governance, uh, and also the practicality of training models effectively, et cetera, et cetera. How's Finder working through that at the moment? You know, I, I will confess I'm not a data scientist. I am a, a creative. So, you know, the way in the which data I approach data analytics show for non-data scientists, so that is totally fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't think my um, my p-values and my, my matrix transp- transpositions are the best, although I did study actuarial studies at university, but that doesn't make me a great data scientist. I do understand the concepts high level, but but I think I can talk to you a little bit about that. I just I just want to disclaimer that if I say something which is not correct, I don't profess to be an expert in this. I prefer think I can you know, really champion the customer and help the customer get what they want. And I think that's where it starts, right? So I think one of the challenges with any data scientist is you can get into this mode where you, where you can play with the data. You kind of lose track of the goal. And I think that's a very easy trap to fall into. And I think there's lots of data science going on, lots of data being processed. But what actually does the customer get at the end of the day? That to me is the practical challenge because there's so much data. 88 million transactions takes a bit of time to process and you know, we, we're, we're literally over the weekend, we had to run a massive model that's getting smarter and smarter every day. We do, do a big process for our bills prediction. So we predict when your bills are coming up now in the Finder app. So 
I think if anything, my first submission is you need to start with the customer problem. And then from there, you can start to build, you know, a model to interpret that. How that's done, technically, I couldn't, I probably couldn't give you any counsel on. But I think the number one problem practically that I see is that there's just a misalignment between data science and the customer problem. And I think what that, what it comes down to is it's not just also understanding, you know, oh, here's the problem high level and we need to get to that answer. It's actually taking ownership and responsibility as a data scientist of the actual end experience of the customer. I think that's the difference, right? If you take responsibility, not just for, you know, what the model does and how it processes and how efficient it is, and that stuff's great, right? That's awesome. What actually matters, in my opinion, is do you actually understand what the end experience will be for the customer? And, you know, I think that's sort of the the unicorn data scientist, right? Where you know what the customer wants and then you build a model and you go and you're able to deliver that. And I think that's sort of how we approach things is, you know, we have this rule where in data science, it's like, don't build a model unless it's going to actually show to the customer. And that's kind of confronting, right? Because there's lots of stuff you could build on and lots of experiment. But if the customer never sees it, I don't want to hear about it. Like, and it's not going to get prioritized in, in terms of being constructed, right? I think that, you know, there's obviously experimentation and there's learning and things like that, but that's not practical and nor pragmatic. And I think the actual challenge and the beauty of the problem is to truly, you know, truly dig in and go, okay, well, you know, how do I save people more money or how do I help them make more money at the end of the day? What actually are the models that need to do that? And I think if you start from that, for us, that's what we do all day. We, we literally just focus on saving people money and making people money. That's, that's it. That's, if it does one of those two things, awesome. If it doesn't, yeah, you're not going to get much airtime in Finder about anything to do with anything else. Yeah, very interesting. And I, I really picked up on something there from you, which is a piece of advice that I typically give to data scientists when they ask me for advice on, on career advice. And I say, make sure you understand technology and you understand customer experience because you are going to be in the future, the nexus between those two things, because you're going to create the data flows that create the, the future customer experiences using data. And that's going to be served up through technology. So uh, I think that's a really important point that I um, totally agree with you on. Now, Fred, I'm going to shift slightly the theme here because there is something that you and I uh, are both a little bit uh, excited about at the moment, I think, which is uh, the world of cryptocurrency, blockchain, uh, decentralized finance. And you've brought it up already more than once in, in this interview. And I've recently noticed that that Finder has taken a real leadership position in a very different way in this space because... Now you can actually, as an employee of Finder, you can actually get paid part of your salary in Bitcoin. So you're obviously very excited about this area. Why is that? So let's go back in time, right? There's a difference between money and currency, right? Let's talk about currencies for a second. And I don't think Bitcoin is a currency. I believe it's, a, it's actually money. Money is a store of value. And, it's, and I think that's a currency is just a representation of value. Every currency on this earth starts worth nothing and ends worth nothing. If you look at all the Roman coins, the Gauls, many currencies that have come and gone throughout our time, there's, if you actually look at the Wikipedia of number of currencies, it's out of control. There is just so many currencies and they're all worthless. They will start being worth nothing and they will end being worth nothing. 
even the Australian dollar will be worth nothing eventually. The US dollar will be worth nothing. It'll all, it will all eventually go back to worth nothing. And the reason for that is that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't store wealth, it doesn't store value. And so my thesis on this entire space and on, on, on Bitcoin in particular is that it's a store of wealth. There is a fixed supply. Whereas, you know, right now we're seeing huge monetary policy around easing, we call it easing of monetary policy. Like to me, like it's just printing money. Now, if you went back in time, which you can, there are people who control currencies and they printed them. And the Romans did this, right? So at the start of the Roman Empire, there was a gold coin and it was made out of gold, 100%. At the end of the Roman Empire, a gold coin only had 2% gold in it because the government or the empire had stole all the, all the gold out of the coins and melted them down and used it to fund armies and you know, become an empire. And eventually they went broke because they, they weren't able to steal money from their people. Now, in the first instance ever in our time, apart from owning you know, other assets, we have a, a store of wealth, which is digital. It is transferable. It is fungible. It is able to hold its, its value. Yes, it's volatile, but we'll talk about that in a second. But this is a revolution. This is, this is a moment in time where the people's money, the people have money, where it's not controlled by a central government for the first time ever in history, controlled by a set of code, which is immutable, a blockchain, again, which is trustless. You don't need to trust anything but the blockchain, which is code, and it's decentralized. And this is a revolution. It's not seen that way yet because it's still only 11 years old. It's fairly on this planet and this, you know, if you go back to 1600s, 1700s, you're only, you don't even have electricity. You know, it wasn't, you got the combustion engine in 1901, right? Or, or sorry, Henry Ford. The combustion engine was before that. By the way, just this whole revolution of electric vehicles pop quiz on that little piece of history is the actual very first cars were electric. Very first Ferdinand Porsche invented um, the electric Porsche in Vienna as the very first car. And now, you know, almost 120 years later, we have the electric Porsche. So, so that's, that's old tech coming back, right? Just that the combustion engine petrol is an extremely efficient source of fuel and energy transportation. It's just very efficient. Batteries were not that efficient. They've become more efficient now. And so that, to me, that's just natural and normal. You know, when we didn't, when we have currency and, and money, you know, if I can't really pick up my piece of gold and take it around with me, it's a little bit cumbersome. But now I can store my gold, my digital gold in my wallet. And that's called Bitcoin. And I can send it to you. I can hold it. I can um, stake it to earn interest. I can use it to pay suppliers. And in our case, in Fonda's case, we can use it to pay our crew that want to receive part of their salary in Bitcoin. And I just think it's a natural evolution. Finder gets paid in cryptocurrency all the time. It's just a normal thing. We don't, we don't mind what, what you pay us in. It's perfectly fine for us. Coming back, I just want a final point on this because a lot of people, I think, I'm just going to extend on one of the threads there, which is talking about volatility. So let's say you had a, a farm and you bought a farm and every day your next door neighbor knocked on your door and told you the price in which they would be willing to pay for your farm. Every day, one day it's a million dollars, then it's a million and ten dollars, then it's a million, then it's nine hundred and sixty thousand dollars, then it's then it's a million two hundred thousand dollars. Right? It would every single day you'd be like, "Wow, the volatility of my farm is so wild," and it'd be crazy, right? 
Now imagine if I told you the price of your farm every second, you would think that it's the most volatile asset on this earth because everyone has certain views. That's the difference here, right? Stocks don't only trade from 9.30 in the morning till 4.30 p.m. That's a tiny window of trading. And so there's not going to be that much news and movement, right? Cryptocurrencies trade 24 by 7, seven days a week. There's no public holidays. The blockchain doesn't turn off. And so, yes, there is more volatility because things are faster to be priced into the price. Things move quicker. Whereas the transactions of property take take a lot longer, shares take a lot longer to settle, and they only trade from you know, Monday to Friday from 9.30 to 4.30 p.m., which is, to me, confusing and baffling. Don't understand why that happens, but maybe you know, it is what it is. And so, yes, it's going to be more volatile because everything is real-time for the first time, streamed, priced in. It's not, it's actually analog. It's continuously on. Whereas the digital side, you know, the, the, the stock market stops and then it closes, closes. What does that even mean? It's like watching a television show or a TV station and it closes after a while. That's exactly how I look at it. Whereas I think the world's moving to everything streaming, right? They want their prices streamed. You want your investments streamed. You want your um, TV shows streamed. You want your software streamed. You want your food streamed to you, you know, people are just subscribing to have real-time access to things. And I think it's the same thing will happen with all industries. It's just that finally we've actually gotten this through to currency. Yeah, nice. A way I think about it is that networked data is slowly eating everything. And the term that we use for network data is the internet, but it's really industry by industry that's getting eaten up or not destroyed, but restructured. So you talk about your Netflix, you talk about music, you talk about now currencies and banking being upended, retail, whatever it is, um, it's slowly happening, but potentially not that slowly. When you think about over 20 to 30 years, we've had the disruption in society that we've had. And I love your your really long-term vision over over centuries um, because that is very unique in, in business. We typically hear about quarterly reporting cycles, but it may or may not be why you're a successful founder when you uh, can think uh, over, over 10, 20, 30, 100 years. Now, there are a lot of criticisms of these cryptocurrencies being worth nothing because, and there are lots of arguments for that. They're not backed by a sovereign nation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, someone like Warren Buffett has called Bitcoin a mirage, why are these critics wrong? Let's go back in time, right? So if I came to you 5,000 years ago and gave you a big shiny piece of metal and said, can I have your cow for this piece of metal? Um, you'd be like, I'm not sure. No, thank you. If I also came to you with this big black giant sludge that, you know, had I couldn't eat it, I couldn't do anything with it, I had to go and refine it to go and do something with it, you'd be like, and I want to buy your cow? You'd be like, no, thank you. And, you know, I think there are countless industries like this, right? So electricity was the exact same thing. When electricity first came out, people were scared of it. They thought the devil was in the wall. And the same thing happened with the internet. If you remember the internet came out, everyone was like, oh, it's where all the scammers are and I'm going to lose all my money and I'm going to get hacked. And no one bought anything on the internet because you were scared about processing your credit card. The thing about, you know, and, and, and maybe to be, let's talk about Warren Buffett for a second. I, I admire him. I love his value investing. But value investing is actually where you see value, where you can value an asset and understand its value. Now, 
Warren Buffett said he's been wrong many, many times. Now, Warren Buffett owns majority, like his majority portfolio, if you look at some of his public stocks, is in Apple and Amazon. Now, that took him a long time to come around to those companies, right? Which is perfectly fine. And that's because he doesn't know how to value those things. Just because you don't know how to value something doesn't mean there is there is no value. And I think that's the, that's the, probably the leap in where I think there's the misconception, right? There are a lot of people who know how to value these currencies, value these coins. You know, you look at the number of wallets, you look at the number of transactions, you look at the profit and the of where people are at, high level exchanges and where they're moving. There's all sorts of ways in which you can look at this from a network effect as well. But that's where the alpha exists because he cannot measure the value of the cryptocurrency. Does not mean that it does not, if you can, does not mean it doesn't have value. It's the, that presents the opportunity that if you can value it, you will receive the alpha, which is from valuing that and know how much it is worth and ascribe then and purchase that and invest into it as he has from all of his investments and assets where he has a better model. He has valued something better than other people. And, you know, let's, let's break down, take it through, you know, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. It's very hard to substitute such a massive brand and network effect. Brand and network effect are both two things which are defensible. They have an incredible moat. And, you know, Warren Buffett is, a, is, is, a, is an investor who backs moats. You know, that's exactly what he looks for. And I think it's just difficult to interpret that, digest that from the place which he is in. That's totally fine. That's great. It means those investors are not involved. Awesome. More opportunity for everyone else. I love it. I think that when it comes to the, the usage of them, it is just unfortunately a, a new technology and it will take time for people to digest and interpret and experience it. And probably most people will never actually understand it because it will be products will be developed where a lot of that alpha will be consumed by the middle middleman. And that's just the nature of every product and service. You know, when the internet first came out, they were going to charge for the internet. The internet was going to be a place where you paid fees to go and access them. And then telcos wanted to charge for the internet. And they have to some extent, but the internet fundamentally is free. If you can get on the internet um, in some way, shape or form, you it's free you don't have to pay to go to a website and that was the ideology that was behind the internet we all pay for our internet through internet browsers for the data usage um for there are now obviously domain names and all those kinds of things that are built on top and most people almost think that i say the majority of the earth thinks that you know the walled garden of facebook is the internet you know, but there is the internet actually exists outside the walled garden of Instagram and Facebook. There is actually a whole internet out there. And, you know, that's, that's probably what's going to happen in some way, shape or form. The people are just going to miss it. And that's great for the people who understand it now because they can get the alpha on that. And the people who will miss out, yeah, they'll get some benefit in their life. But, you know, I remember a lot of the things that started the gold rush in Australia were there when people went to the actual places. Um, there were actually just giant gold nuggets sitting on top of the earth. It was that unmined. It was just that open. And I think that's much the case in cryptocurrency and a lot of people are going to make a lot of money out of it now. And it's just the, you know, the nature of, of the business. And I, I actually think it's great. The longer the misnomer that there's no value ascribed to cryptocurrency, 
yeah, the better for the people who know about it and take that risk. And, you know, I think there's going to be an incredible Cabrian explosion of retailized products, sanitized products that have a cost, just like a bank sits on top of people's savings accounts and rents it out in all sorts of ways to make huge sums of money. That will happen with cryptocurrency as well. Yeah, and we're already seeing some form of sanitization with, with stable coins, which are linked to a, um, a sort of fiat currency. Now, we are not in the business here of giving financial advice on cryptocurrencies, but I encourage all listeners to go and actually study this area because it is a very interesting area and it's evolving so fast. And we're having, uh, I'd say we, we are seeing the, the first, second and, and third generation cryptocurrencies play together at the moment and it's evolving so fast. And in a year or two, the technology is going to be so much more mature than it is now. Now, Fred, um, just before the end here, the last two uh, questions. Something that's really important is you have just published a new book and it sounds like a really interesting book. And um, could you tell us a little bit about that book and what the reader can get out of it? Yeah. So I think with this book, you know, a lot of people write, you know, books about how to make money, a million dollars, how to change your life, how to, how to lose weight, how to turn your life around. And I don't think that's, I don't know whether I'm the best person to do that. And, you know, a lot of them have a lot of rules and unfortunately I'm a, pretty bad, pretty big rule breaker. So I don't think I could teach you my rules. But what I can teach is the principles which are immutable, which I conduct business with and can and use those principles to launch businesses with. And they are the most invaluable. I think it took me a long time to figure out what value could I provide. I believe those principles are the biggest things that I can share with the world. And hopefully in some small way, those principles will help people build and go live with some incredible um, business ideas and, and make and change the world to be a little bit of a better place. And what's the book called? So it's called Go Live, which is, you know, everyone knows me in Finder for saying that, you know, should we, should we launch this? I'm like, go live. You know, I love the idea of launching and going live. It's the 10 principles, you know, to build a global empire. Nice. Love it. And I can see from this interview what a methodical thinker you are and, and how you use these principles that you've sort of, it seems like you've collected uh, a lot from history and um, watching history repeat itself again and again and using that in your thinking. Uh, last question. So in on this podcast, we paid forward. So who would you like to see as the next guest on this podcast and why? I think you should get Melanie from Canva on it. I don't know if you know. Yeah. She's, she, you know, they have a lot of data in their business and I think that they do some incredible user experiences and it'd be just be fascinating to hear her views on the future. All right. Well, we'll see if we can make that happen. We'll let, let her know that uh, Fred told her to come on. Fred Chibester, thanks a million for being on the show. Really interesting. And I'm so interested in following the journey of Finder for the next few years with your app, your website, cryptocurrency and your new book. So uh, congratulations on your success so far and all the best for your future success in your life. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on. And thanks for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.